to Football Pod with Paddy and Andy, our new weekly Gaelic football show. Lads, it's official, right? No GA player was practicing tackling at all during lockdown. They were practicing that dummy bounce. Download the OTB Sports app and subscribe to the GAA podcast feed now. Have you subscribed to the OTB Football Podcast? I tell you, if I was in management, I wouldn't go to Spurs now. No way. I think Brandon Rodgers would be mad to go to Spurs. Subscribe now to the OTB Football Podcast stream wherever you get your podcasts and download the OTB Sports app. The Sunday Papers on Off The Ball. Turn to the headlines in the Sunday Papers. Starting with the Sunday Times and it's the moment when Kai Havertz went in on goal against Chelsea or for Chelsea, excuse me, last night against Manchester City. So he took it around the keeper and uh, the headline is Porto Prince and it's Kai Havertz here and it's Man City nil, Chelsea won. Then I have the Sunday World and it's Super Blues have it. And it's Kai in the sky as Chelsea crowned kings of Europe. Kai Havertz lost for words, says Kevin Palmer. Beneath that, Roy back in uh, Celtic sites. Apparently, the Eddie Howe to Celtic move fell down. It seems Roy Keane back in Celtic minds. Then we have the star to have and to hold. Lots of Kai Havertz puns, as you can imagine, to have and to hold. Uh, Tuchel bests Pep again. That's uh, the view of the uh, star Chelsea crowned kings of Europe. Sunday Independent have the Kings of Europe headline and it's a picture of Kai Havertz lifting the trophy afterwards to, in front of the Chelsea fans. Chelsea Joy as Havertz strike completes a remarkable turnaround under Tuchel. I mean, it's been a very impressive 124 days work. You have to say that. Then uh, the Sunday Mirror and it's Havertz on his knees after scoring the goal. Kai and Mighty Havertz ends Pep's Euro dream picture of Pep there. Mid-game with his hands on his cheeks, not liking what he's seeing. We have uh, Sun Sport, and again, it's Havertz, Kai Havertz. Kai's first half strike, hands Tuchel glory, and then a theme inside. We might get to it in a few moments' time, but it's on the back page here of the Sun. Pep tinkers yet again and pays the price. Obviously, no Fernandinho, no uh, Rodri in that more defensive midfield position last night. And then uh, the Mail on Sunday, Kai and Mighty, picture of Havertz after scoring the goal. Havertz goal fires Chelsea to glory in Porto as Pep's men fluff their lines. And beneath that, Philip Quinn, Ireland in line to host 16 World Cup matches, apparently. So uh, staging the 2030 World Cup is not the gimmick we're all thinking. So it seems it's a very realistic possibility, said Roy Barrett, speaking to the Sunday papers. The focus is getting UEFA support and the bid looks the strongest. So... If Ireland and the UK win the UEFA bid, then they're up against uh, South American bid in particular. It seems Uruguay and a couple of other countries. So it seems 16 matches would be coming to Ireland if they were to win the 2030 bid. That's on the back page of the Mail on Sunday. And this story as well, I mean, we'll probably come to this. There are a few pieces on the Olympics and the lack of support for the Olympics, not least around Tokyo. But IOC, that's the International Olympic Committee, this is on the back page. It's by Nick Harris. They're seeking to be absolved, quote, even in the case of death. So they're getting all the athletes who are going to pitch up on July 23rd for the Olympics. And I would presume it'll be the same for the Paralympics, that they have to agree that they're participating at their own risk and their own responsibility, including any impact on my participation to and or performance in the game, serious bodily injury or even or even death raised by the potential exposure to health hazards. And then they add in, such as COVID-19. So 
it's a hell of a waiver to sign. It's basically um, completely releasing the IOC of any liability for any loss, injury, infectious disease or uh, damage. Now, there are waivers at time signed, but never before, says uh, Nick Harris, has there been one which specifically mentioned death. So it's a strange one, isn't it? Now, very up to say, we have uh, Tommy Conlon of the Sunday Independent with us. Hi, Tommy. Hi, Joe. And Mick O'Keefe, CEO of Teneo Ireland, obviously former Dublin Hi, footballer, Joe. League of Ireland player as well. Hi, great to have you, Mick. And, and to- you. It's great to be here. Thank you. Tommy, I saw the Keith Earls book is coming out. You're, you worked with Keith Earls on that. So I'd say that was an interesting project. Always struck me as a very interesting fella. Arrived very young on the scene, not least that Lions tour in 09. And I think judging from afar, and this will be the interesting thing in the book, took a few years maybe to find his feet and his comfort levels in professionalism. Yeah, uh, I hope it'll be interesting, Joe. I think it will. Uh, just to say, it's not quite past tense yet in terms of the writing. I'm actually right in the middle of it as we uh, at the moment, uh, kind of uh, in my bunker, um, 10 hours a day every day, uh, racking up the words and uh, trying to get the chapters done, you know. So it's just... Uh, Everyone or anyone who's done a book will be familiar with that uh, stage of the process where basically you just lock the door and throw away the key mm. and just keep churning out the words every day. Okay. All the interview, all the interviews are done, all the research is done. Um, and to uh, answer your other point, I, I um, you you will be familiar a lot of elite sportsmen, athletes over the years, and women will have said at least occasionally. You don't know me. All you see is, you know, the one percent of me. The, that's on. That's the one percent that's uh, playing on a Saturday or Sunday or whatever. And uh, people, uh, everyone, I guess myself included, conflate uh, the person we see on the pitch with the uh, actual person. And uh, I think it, I think readers will find in the case of Keith Earls, as in many many more of these athletes, that there is an enormous amount that we don't know mm. and uh, and we presume i guess we presume too often that we do know and uh i keith is is has been open to sharing a lot a lot from his his story and uh, i think i think readers probably will be surprised uh uh to discover some of those stories and some of the reality of being an elite sports person very good. Well, best of luck with it. Thanks, Joe. So uh, one other uh, story on the front page is actually I meant to mention it's on the front page of the uh, Sunday Times and the Mail on Sunday, just on Robbie Keane's contract situation mix. So Keane nears resolution to stand off with FAI. I think people are pretty familiar with this story at this stage. Robbie Keane signed a four year deal with the FAI in 2018 to bring him up to 2022 in April 2018. 20. So halfway through, I guess, he was informed that Stephen Kenny wouldn't be taking him on board or didn't need his services. And in effect, he hasn't really had anything to do, but was still very much under contract. So this is Paul Rowan here in the Sunday Times. FAI Chief Executive Jonathan Hill is said to be making substantial progress in resolving their standoff with Robbie Keane after he was dropped last year by Stephen Kenny. So Roy Barrett, the FAI chairman, there's ongoing dialogue with Robbie and Jonathan and we'll see what comes of that. We should have an outcome in the not too distant future. And on the mail on Sunday, they just say, meanwhile, Robbie Keane's contract situation at the FAI should be resolved soon. 
according to uh, Barrett. There's ongoing dialogue, the same quotes there. I mean, I guess make this thing's resolved soon one way or the other. I mean, the thing's nearly up at this stage. We're nearly into 2022. Yeah, and look, what, it's one of John Delaney's parting gifts but the looks of things. And, mm. you know, <clears throat> what I was surprised at, and I didn't realise this was the number, I thought it was a little bit less, was the 250,000 um, per annum. Like, when you think about the finances of the FAI and you think about the prize money in the league and everything like that, it's just an astonishing waste for someone who's not doing any work, you know? So I think there has been chatter around trying to give him another job. Um, they spoke about this hundred year anniversary in some kind of ambassadorial role. Um, it does seem that this has gone personal, which is, you see, he seems to be quite hurt by the way he was treated. So it's more a point of principle than anything else. So he might just sit it out. Mm. It says here in the Sunday Times, it was thought Keen, as you mentioned, Mick, might fulfil an ambassadorial role in the forthcoming celebrations, though sources close to Keane dismissed that situation or that suggestion uh, last night. This was agreed with John Delaney, this contract in 2018, even though Mick McCarthy had only signed a two year contract, his salary around 250,000 a year. That is the original sin here, isn't it, Tommy, that yeah. John Delaney and the FAI in their wisdom, a parting gift, as Mick O'Keefe says there, gave Mick McCarthy a two-year contract and decided it would be a good idea to give Robbie Keane a four-year contract. So it just created a mess here. And obviously, I mean, when Robbie Keane's dropped the way he was dropped, he's going to feel hurt by the whole thing. And, and I suspect Mick is right when he says things got personal. I, I suspect so too. And it is one of the legacy uh, issues left over from the Delaney regime, as you see. Ro Robbie Keane is perfectly entitled to the money. The contract is legit and um, he's not doing anything wrong in that sense, but it is very, very embarrassing for him. He has been essentially uh, on gardening leave for 12 months through no fault of his own, but um, Stephen Kenny didn't want him uh, ar ar uh, involved in his uh, uh, backroom staff, as we know. Mm. And so um, uh, Robbie's had 12 months doing nothing and picking up, picking up, taking a quarter of a million from an organisation that is essentially insolvent, that has something like seventy million in debt, and I think Robbie Keane should have walked away with uh, last year, uh, sorted out some, even from his own sense of pride or honour. Uh, if I'm not wanted, any of us know if you're not wanted somewhere, you leave, you walk away. And um, maybe if maybe ha hammered out some sort of a, an agreement, but. He could he could afford you one would imagine the financial loss and the FAI cannot afford to be paying quarter of a million to someone who isn't uh, through no fault of his own but still is not doing any work for it. Yeah, it's crazy. I think Tommy though situation. comes down to it, 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 it comes back to how public the humiliation was. So he's more or less told he wasn't his face didn't fit and he wasn't fit for purpose. Um, yeah, and I think he took that quite personally and it was dragged out in, in very public glare of the media you know and i think he's probably just sitting there going well look this is my revenge you know he doesn't need the money you know he do doesn't want to be mm -hmm. redeployed on a better way of saying it so you know um i think he was quite hurt at how the news was relayed to himself as well which seemed to have been post leak over yeah, a phone call yeah. so you know in saying that you've jonathan hill has gone in there who has an enormous job in his hands who's doing his best who doesn't need this hassle either so you'd like to think that he could come to his senses and do something for the for the greater good Mm. And it's, it's if like you to give the money back and ring fence it for the development of women's football or the league or yeah. something, you could do something to 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 come out well out of this. 
doing doing something for for pig iron for for out of uh, grieve a sense of grievance isn't a, 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 I think we'd mostly agree isn't a great idea either. And uh, I, I take your point, Mick, that he was hurt by it. But uh, in in professional football, as as we all know, there uh, people are routinely fired and got rid of and hurt. I mean, it's 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 everyday realities of fellas being. Uh, uh, not getting contracts renewed, getting players not getting contracts renewed. It, it, it's as we know, everyone is a disposable in that in that industry, and one would have thought, therefore, that Robbie would have been a bit more thick-skinned about the realities of of a sport yeah, he's been in for twenty years. Does, yeah, the only difference, Tommy, though, is is you know, look, and it's a fellow with what over hundred caps for Ireland, record goals yeah. for. He hadn't done anything wrong. Like he hadn't done anything. Agreed. You know, was, was the point. So yeah. he wasn't. It, the difference here is that he, he wasn't. This wasn't a performance-based issue, or this was no. just something that was poorly handled. Stephen Kenny was fully entitled to say, "I didn't want him on my team," but surely they could have done something in the background. This is like, you know, uh, it was humiliating for. Let's be honest, and he's not a guy that always gets the plaudits that he should have got. One of our greatest players of all time. Yeah, uh, and yeah. He, he gets to read about him being stepped down. Uh, from a position without having any chance mm. to prove himself, they should have done something. They should have handled it so much better than how they handled it. Agreed. In saying agreed. that, now he has the chance to get the upper to, to get the, the moral high ground and actually sort it out if he wants to, because no one no one wants to see the FAI down two hundred and fifty grand a year when the money could be going somewhere else. Mm. Well, his agent refused to comment for the piece as to what Keane's motivations are. We don't really know, or what his thinking is. We don't really know. To be fair to him. He may come out in due course and explain his side of the story. But this just came up in uh, Sunday briefing, Sunday papers briefing with the FAI. That's how it came up. So we'll see what Robbie Keane has to say about the whole situation, I would think, at some stage in the future in in due course. But it's on the front page there, the Sunday Times and the back page of the Mail on Sunday. It is a lot of money, obviously, 250 grand a year and and same next year until the contract is up. Chelsea against Man City. A really Mm. good game, I thought, Tommy. Uh, What about the, the pieces in the paper today? What are they making of it? Thoroughly enjoyed it, Joe. I think I get the sense that most people were pleasantly surprised at how dramatic it was, packed with action and incident, attacking play. Um, there was the usual uh, residual fear, as there is around these big set-piece occasions, that you could have stagnation through through pure uh, caution and fear and conservatism. And um, But uh, um, the match reports, I mean, uh, uh, as someone who's uh, done his stint at the front line doing live match reports, I've an abiding respect for every single uh, sports reporter who is on a late-night deadline. Of a live football match, it's incredibly stressful, and uh, I have bottomless ad- admiration for the people who do as well. And so uh, I, I, I often just, just out of more professional sort of curiosity, uh, one of the things I'll do on a Sunday is just compare and contrast how various reporters handled that stress and managed to uh, deliver, you know, the best, the best pieces, the best reports, you know, and. Once again, and, and, and once again, the standard is top notch, like across the papers, or at least the ones uh, I've read, the Times, Sunday Times, um, the Telegraph, um, the Mail on Sunday, uh, the Independent, the UK Independent, you know, and um, the, these, these fellas are churning out these match reports under ridiculous pressure. And even trying to, trying to get all your facts in a row is one thing. But trying to write, you know, stylish prose and uh, uh, or even do a coherent report would be adequate. But some of them are capable of of writing uh, actually 
very composed pieces as if they had um, a couple of days to write it and um, it's invidious I suppose but to mention to name individuals but in Ireland I mean uh, I actually had a bit of a Twitter spat with Rory Smith of the New York Times a couple of years ago uh, we, uh, he was um, tweeting about the pressures and about the job of doing live deadline match reporting and uh, that the thread followed and various contributors and and um, I, I chipped in maybe a little bit uncollegially of me to say that <laughs> to say that there is no more stressful match reporting situation than a hurling game and <laughs> I've done I've done it a few times it's horrendous and uh, <clears throat> because apart <clears throat> in football for example you might get a you will get a normally a low scoring game and you can you can have your head down at your laptop typing out paragraphs because you don't have necessarily much to record of live action whereas in hurling uh, for example you, i mean you you you're trying to compose your intro then there's a point scored so you have to record the the point and then back it back to your laptop again another and then you're distracted again another point another point another point and there could be 50 or 60 scores, 10 substitutions, all sorts going on, and get all that done uh, more or less on the final whistle. Mm. Um, so, Tommy, uh, I, I, I thought with, the, with your big budgets there in the end, though, that you'd have an army of statisticians <laughs> there doing that stuff, you know? Um, uh, yeah, uh, <laughs> if only, Mick, if only. Um, you know what? Someone still, has to, someone still has to write the report, Mick, you know? Uh, you can't have a committee doing that, like. And um, uh, uh, but um, so I, 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 I from that point of view, I was looking at it, and as I was saying, the standard is really, really good. Sam Wallace, in particular, in the Telegraph, I thought was excellent, and um, he, he, even even allowing for even uh, allowing for how good he, he was. I mean, there's a couple of mistakes in the copy, um, and. That is not at all. And that is not at all any re remotely anything to do with his uh, professionalism or, or a bit. It's it's actually a superb match report. It's just that the pure stress of the time he had meant that there was just a couple of things uh, of of errors that weren't picked up. Very minor. And if you go through across all the the, the page, or at least the sports pages I've read, the standard reportage writing coherent where all relevant facts and all relevant incidents there's a, a mixture of analysis in the reportage to to do with guardiola's team selection and in report after report these top professionals have managed to capture a lot of the essence of the night yeah so I've uh, Graeme Sunis here, for instance, as an, anal an, an analysis piece, excuse me, page three of the Sunday Times. Yeah. It's both good and bad. Like it, it, I, I, I turned to Sunis because I wanted to see what did he make of, for the first time in 60 games, Pep going without a Fernandinho or a Rodri. I thought, well, Sunis as a midfielder will be interesting in this. So he doesn't get there at first. He starts off by saying, you know, Manchester City, the best group of players I've seen in British football in my uh, 50 years, talks about how difficult it must be for Pep to pick a team. But then he talks about Tuchel, says it was a modern masterclass tactically, great effort for the Premier League. Chelsea made more of less possession. They look more threatening than City did. Talked about the distances between their centre half and the centre forward. Could have only been 25 yards. It was extremely compact, hard to break down. Chelsea brought City onto them and then sprung from there. That was exactly how, how Kai Havertz scored his goal just before half time. 
uh, talked about how brilliant Mason Mount is. He really loves Mount and said N'Golo Kante was my man of the match. He was everywhere putting out fires against City's midfield. On the flanks, Ben Chilwell had Riyad Mahrez in his pocket. Rhys James did the same with Raheem Sterling on the other side of the pitch. I thought that was all really interesting, good stuff. You could see City getting frustrated as the match wore on. He says as well then of the Rodri Fernandinho omissions. He just said City think they can outgun anyone in any game and that explains why Guardiola started with neither Fernandinho nor Rodri, his two holding midfielders, and then sent on Fernandinho for De Bruyne when he was chasing the game. And then he just moves on to Phil Foden. Phil Foden played in midfield. He's going to be a great player. He's going to do well at the Euros, etc. And I kind of think, well, Graham, like, tell me what you think here. Is this the reason they lost the game? Was this a ridiculous mistake? I mean, I know why he picked them. Uh, what do you yeah. think of it? So I was kind of touch disappointed with Sunas there. I wanted to know, did he think Pep had screwed this up or it was just very understandable and wasn't the winning or losing of the game? Like, for instance, you turn the page over and it's Henry Winter and his line is very much Guardiola's gamble fails on biggest stage of all. Even the most confident and sure of foot can stumble. Even such refined minds as Guardiola can cloud over. Why hadn't he started Fernandinho? He's 36, still a vital force. It looked almost... Arrogance by Guardiola, says Henry Winter, omitting his chief dog of war, relying on creative types in the engine room, appeared a mistake at kickoff and looked calamitous as Thomas Tuchel's better organised Chelsea took control. Tuchel kept it simple, playing players in the right positions. N'Golo Kante ran the show, etc. I'd love to know, does Sunas feel that strongly about it? But you don't quite know based on today. Mick, what did you, what did you take from it all? Yeah. I, I, I was really interested in this and kind of not, not quite to Tommy's uh, forensic kind of examination of the reports, but I had a look at the analysis, um, particularly in the UK press, the BBC and the Guardian and other places, and they're all ish saying the same thing, which is interesting post-match around, you know, it, it seems to be quite black and white. This kind of, you know, analysis favours the victorious a little bit here. Mm. So it's all about two tactical masterclass, you know, tactical battle. You know, I, I, I think... Soon as for me, it, it kind of half reads like he rang this in. Like it, it doesn't. Yeah. It doesn't actually. He doesn't go into deep detail on the why. He keeps it at kind of very high level. I think. Um, you know, he touches on a few of the themes that we've spoken about. Kante, you know how you know he, nice thing about you know the how compact they were and how difficult it is to actually do that. And it was a masterclass in terms of being able to blunt the opposition. And when you have someone like Kante, who's a defensive holding midfielder, getting man of the match, well, then that kind of shows you. I do. I did like the Henry Winter piece more um, on page five of the Sunday Times um, because he kind of goes, you know, all guns blazing here on, on, on Guardiola um, to a point where he more than strongly hints that Guardiola's, you know, he overthought it, uh, was trying to be too clever, and there was a kind of a, 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 a kind of a smidgen of arrogance about how he set the team up. It was kind of like, you know, you guys are going to set up defensively. We're going to come out with a load of creative players in the team. We're going to pass around you, and we're going to beat you. Um, whereas actually, in hindsight, what is proven is that he really should have started with a better balanced side. And then by the time he actually got his team right, it was too late. Mm. Is the is the team I'm reading in that in in in, in that piece now? He did another, and I think it is in this article as well, um, that, you know, that his, the way he set himself up, Tuchel, that is, was a victory for simplicity and discipline. And actually, that's a theme that runs through some of the the GA pieces that come as well. And that, 
really the Guardiola thing was just about overthinking uh, and over been trying to be too clever. Mm. Um, and actually, it's it's quite it's quite stinging. I actually think that that Henry Winter piece on 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 page five of, of the Sunday Times. Um, and and he goes into fairly kind of fairly uh, uh, not aggressive is the wrong word, but it's fairly sharp yeah. in in, yeah. in in places, you know. Well, it's now Tommy placed alongside the Leon quarterfinal last year on Pep's part. His neuroticism yeah. almost getting the better of him. His genius, his overthinking. Tuchel got into his head with the FA Cup defeat, mm. and he panicked. He didn't hold his nerve. Is the way this has been portrayed. I mean. I, I get that and Fernandinho I'm sure may have uh, been 10 yards further along than Gundogan was and maybe would have intercepted that ball who knows I, I guess th- mm. the point it overlooks though where I worry it gets a bit too simplistic is that it overlooks the fact City still didn't actually score you know I mean okay anyone can concede a goal that happens but City didn't score a goal in this game I'm not sure if Fernandinho even though he played a lovely through ball at one stage is he the creative force they were missing so uh, there is that aspect to yeah. this as well. I, I, you'd wonder. You see, sometimes um, you'd wonder did Guardiola's selection when he announced that to his team. Mm. Now, uh, I'd like you'd like to know when was it at fr- Friday training? Uh, when when does he normally sit down the team in the dressing room and name name it? Because that's the time when you'll ever get a more silent dressing room in any sport mm. than when the manager is naming the team. Mm. And I wonder, did this um, um, d- decision out of left field, did it spook the horses? Did it frighten the horses a bit? Beyond the issue, Joe, uh, I take your point about Fernandinho, they still didn't score a goal, so maybe it didn't matter that much. But I wonder, psychologically, did it frighten the horses a little bit? Yeah. They're, very, they're very highly strung, these thoroughbreds. And you just wonder, did it just cloud their uh, cloud their minds? Did it sow a seed of unease? Mm, and mm. did that ripple through the team? And there was apparent confusion, even in the uh, if you're to take out the psychological or emotional aspect of it. Uh, if you're to looking at them at the, the normal systemic pass, systematic pass and move that they usually it was just a bit. Uh, it was a bit cl- clouded. Mm. It just wasn't quite functioning at the normal rhythm, and um, uh, and the, the contrast then with Tuchel's team, what I thought was 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 he sent out a team absolutely brilliantly prepared psychologically, emotionally, and uh, sometimes that is just done by an appeal to the emotions of the team. But sometimes it's also because they love the formation he has picked. Mm. They love the idea, and that makes them feel secure in themselves. And we could we could all see it for last night. He had a he had a very condensed configuration between uh, his defence, his midfield, and his forward line, about twenty five meters between them. And he managed they managed to condense uh, the Man City, the otherwise deadly Man City, uh, pass and move game into that sort of rectangle. And the Chelsea players seemed to absolutely know, believe in it. I know exactly what each person was doing mm. and performed accordingly. Yeah, agree with that. Total clarity. And I think yeah. as well, Mick, everybody now has Kante in their World Eleven at the moment. <laughs> it makes you think about France as well, doesn't it? Yeah. Um, but yeah, look, I, 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 I do think though with these things, look, Guardiola is a brilliant manager and, mm. you know, he always tries to set his teams up to play. Um, 
and he and I know soon as alluded to the analogy of of having too many dresses to wear and maybe you pick the wrong costume because he has a, a whole embarrassment of riches in his in his squad um but isn't, is, isn't it so striking though when of 60 games this year he's either had a Rodri yeah. or a Fernandinho in 59 of them yeah, and this this is the first time this starting eleven had ever played together. Like I thought, Mick, it, it, I, I thought Foden looked a bit lost in that deeper three. Mm. Foden looked lost. He started Sterling, who hasn't really been um, his face hasn't fitted um, this year either. But I do think though in these games, circumstance can can lead to way a game plays out. Obviously, so like if Chelsea scored first. The way they set themselves up, it was always going to be really difficult to break them down. Yes, right? yeah. Um, and and I think we can be very clever after the fact. Yeah. Um, look, of course, you look at it now and you say, should he have set up differently? Why wouldn't he have played Fernandino or Rodri? Mm. And you kind of go, yeah, he should have, right? But that's been wise now. Mm. So he's thinking they're ahead in a match on Thursday or Friday or whatever the time is. He's thinking about how he's going to play around them. He's putting trust in his flair players. He's starting Sterling, Foden, Bruyne. You know, like it's there's there's not probably a, a more potent ball playing force in the moment like like those fellas. So, you know, I can understand the logic of what he did in mm. hindsight. Look, obviously he's got it wrong. You yeah, know? yeah. Um, no, uh, totally agree with that. Totally agree with the hindsight. And in advance, I mean, it was very possible to say, well, look at the bravery of this selection. Wow, he's going to imbue his whole team with such confidence, etc. We are definitely uh, Sunday morning sorry. quarterbacking. Sorry, Tommy. Last one. <laughs> sorry, sorry, sorry to cut across you, Joe. But there was a lot of there was a lot of a lot of observers and pundits were flagging it up. From the no, it's that, that that's true. Brian Kerr and Niall Quinn were raising yeah. raising more than an eyebrow and version anyway. There was a lot of people. There was a lot of people online and elsewhere yeah. uh, uh, wondering in advance: Has he out, 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 out? Um, and I think Matt Dickinson in the Sunday Times, one of the guys here, talks about that. There was a sense that maybe he was trying. He knew that Tuchel was coming up with something, mm. and that he was trying to outmaneuver the maneuver. Yeah, uh, and and maybe to, not to second guess Tuchel, but almost to third guess him, and uh, and and. It's not necessarily um, hindsight. Uh, Joe, there was, well. a, there was no. a lot of concern, uh, but and I thought one line from Tuchel afterwards. He was very telling. He said, "We wanted to put a stone in their shoe. We wanted to put a stone in the Manchester City clockwork. In the Manchester City clockwork, mm. and put a stone in the in the other ways in the machine. Yeah, and and they did it." They sure did. It but was, I put it, you know, uh, yeah. I'd, I'd much rather be a season ticket holder for Man City than Chelsea. Like, you know, I'd rather go watch Man City, to be honest with you. But, yeah. that's, but the other thing that's interesting in the analysis, sorry, one last point, Joe, yes, um, yeah. is, um, and I found it interesting as well in the post-match interviews, is um, the three English players in the Chelsea team um, played particularly well. And um, I think Chelsea is a club who has had a lot of imported players. But if you look at the great Chelsea teams of... A decade ago where they would have had a spine of, of English players. I think it was interesting to note a 21, 22 and 24 year old um, backboning essentially the, the Chelsea team. Some of them are homegrown um, and I think it also you know would point to and I know it, it's not for now but you know the amount of young talent um, the English national team has at this moment in time um, and what a cracking chance they have if they get their team right in the summer. Yeah very much so. We're going to pick things up more with uh, Mick and Tommy in just a second, but it's gone half time in a few of these Allianz Football League games, including in Castle Bar. Tommy Rooney's watched the first half there. Tommy, I have Mayo 
against Meath here in total control. Mayo 3-11. That is a hell of a scoreline after 35 minutes of football. Mayo 3-11 to Meath 1-5. Well, Joe, yeah, Mayo are hammering Meath here. Uh, I'll be honest, when I when I was driving up the road today to Castlebar, I was thinking, do you know what? Mayo have made seven changes. The Meath uh, team looks pretty settled. Uh, I think we can give them a go here. But Andy McEntee made seven changes before half-time. A number of younger lads have gotten a start. And you can really tell that Mayo are a step above them up here today. James Carroll scored 2-1. Top scorer so far. A fine goal in injury time. Pretty much buried Meath's hope uh, of a comeback. There's a 12-point uh, deficit here at half-time. Killian O'Connor scored a penalty straight after the water break. And then Carr's first goal came a couple of moments after that. One of the moments to sum up the half, Joe. Meath are attacking. Lee Keegan was such an easy turnover on the halfway line. Plays a lovely ball to Killian O'Connor. Takes a touch. Finds Jermud. Jermud goes through on goal. Cut a shot. Plays the ball across to James Carr and it's a tap in. Now the referee did check for a square ball and I'm pretty sure Andy McIntyre was shouting for a two. But uh, it wasn't. No luck for Meath. Meath did draw a level at one stage in the half. Uh, a brilliant run from Jack O'Connor who scored Meath's first point of the game. Drew a save from Rob Henley and Breen Condon bundled it in. That left it 1-2 to five points after about 14 minutes but after that Joe Mayo have just taken over completely Mead have had four different free takers uh, James Conlon has kicked a few Jack Flynn scored one point but it kind of just sums them up uh, Mickey Newman is back for Mead today it may not mean a lot to you but Mickey Newman is, uh, had retired earlier uh, last year through the hip, due to hip injuries but he had a successful surgery and he's back on the Mead panel he's wearing number 15 I saw Shane McEntee the Mead captain and Don Kilgan warming up at half time we could well see them but it's been all Mayo so far. OK, very good, Tommy. Thanks for that. Half-time at McHale Park, as Tommy was saying. All Mayo. Mayo 3-11, Meath 1-5 in the same group. Westmeath and Down both 0-2 coming into this game. Uh, down 9 points, Westmeath 3 points is the latest there again. Half-time in that game. Also, Division 2 South, we have uh, two games which have just gone half-time. So Clare obviously have started the uh, campaign so well with two wins. They're trailing Cork by a point. So it's Cork 12 points, Clare 1-8. That's on in Ennis. And then the other game is on in Leash, and it's Leash 4 points, Kildare 1-7. So a six-point lead for Kildare at the break. We're taking short ad break here ourselves, and then we're back with more from Tommy Conlon and Mick O'Keefe on the Sunday Papers. The Sunday Papers on Off The Ball. Very welcome back. So Tommy Conlon of the Sunday Independent and Mick O'Keefe, CEO of Teneo Ireland, both with us. Gents, we might turn to GAA because the good times are here, it would seem, and lots of uh, various columnists are picking up on the theme. So Christy O'Connor, I might just uh, initiate things with in the Sunday Times. I think Christy always brings great research to his pieces and he's got the numbers here to back up the sense we all have at the moment that the game is really opening up so he starts things off by talking about that Donegal Monaghan game in Bally Buffet last Saturday and how Declan Bonner said it was a crazy game Donegal 12 points from 14 shots in the second half they finished with 120 but it was still only enough to scramble a draw Monaghan scored 4 goals they could have had 9 and then he gives us some of the figures so for instance uh, thus far Ulster, which has had a long reputation for defensive football, prior to this weekend, the four Division 1 North sides produced an average of 38 points per game. After the opening two league rounds, the total points per game was 34.6, which hammers the previous record of uh, 2014. He talks then, he has a little graph about just uh, championship football, whatever about league football. So back in 2001 in the football championship, there was an average of 29.5 points per game. 
Uh, a high point was 2018. We had 37.5 points per game. 2019, 35.7 points per game. Dropped a touch last year, but that was a winter championship and it was a knockout championship, so not as many games. And uh, Mick talks about different things. Um, mentions the, I guess, the GEA equivalent of Gegen pressing teams are pressing very high up now. And so if you beat the press, then suddenly there's space in behind. Evan Comerford showed that against Kerry last week. Or if uh, the press isn't beaten and maybe you win the ball high up, that leads to a quick score. Uh, Colin O'Rourke picks up that bat on in the Sunday Independent and maybe puts it more succinctly. He says, might be a bit premature to think that we're on the brink of a new era of open attacking football on the basis of some of the games last weekend. But there was a real emphasis on moving the ball forward at pace and players encouraged to show their skills. Yeah, uh, um, sorry, I'll, I'll take that one, Joe, if you want. Um, um, really interesting piece by Christy O'Connor, I thought. Um, Conor Moruk is good too, Brawley's good. I know Tommy has a has a different take on this, more Dublin Kerry-focused piece. But um, for people who are football nerds like myself, um, it's great. And I, I'm not sure kind of average points per game is the best stat to kind of measure because sometimes, um, you know, that can denote one side of competitions one side of competition as well i think what we're seeing now in a wider sense is a higher quality uh, games better score taking and there's a whole myriad of reasons it's only when you piece all them together and i think christy o'connor spot on i think teams are pressing i think some of them have have perfected the art of counter-attack i think it's all points to an evolution and i think this year what we're getting as well is players look fit they look fresh the pitches look you know, are, are playing well and they're playing quickly as well, which I think, which I think helps. And I think there's been an evolution of GA tactics away from the very dogged stop the other team playing mm-hmm. and more about how you set yourself up to score. Because I think people have moved away from we'll just keep this you know team to 10, 12 points and we'll try you know and 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 come out a point the other side. Um, and I think it's fascinating. And 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 I think he he makes some really good points. One thing I would slightly disagree with him on mm. is. He talks about the black card been introduced in 2014. And I actually think with all the hullabaloo, particularly in hurling circles around rule changes, I actually think the GA uh, took the issue of the product that, that was football, um, you know, for 10 years, which I think people were really struggling with as a, as a, as a spectacle. Um, and they introduced things like tweaks to the kick out, um, the black card. I, I'm not totally opposed to the, to the, to the mark rule either, I have to say so. I think we need to give the GA a little bit of credit here that they did actually facilitate new rules that enabled more skillful players um, to more freedom, which in turn, I think, enables teams to go out and play with a little bit more freedom. And maybe it's taken six, seven, eight years for that evolution to to come to fruition. And hopefully what we're going to see is high scoring, um, a lot more kick passing um, and and teams, as as I think um, Christy O'Connor alludes to, um, playing much further up the pitch um, because you, you can't win. And you see the club level all over the place. You can't win with a load of lads behind the ball. It's just a really difficult thing to execute. And players don't like it. Mm. Is the other thing. You talk to any player, he doesn't dream of waking up and, you know, dropping back and playing on the 30 yards out from his own goal. The, the slightly different take on it and, um, um, is... Um, Brawley alludes to it, and, and as does Colm O'Rourke, um, that it is about getting your better forwards into the right position and closer to the goal. 
and having a system that actually means that Dean Rock and David Clifford and Con Callahan don't end up playing 50 yards out from goal. And we saw that with Gooch in the latter half of his career, where he ended up going so deep that he was almost ineffective at times. Now, he's a brilliant player, don't get, don't get me wrong. Sure. But I think what you're seeing is is the, the scoring forward staying in scoring positions and, and teams setting up in a way that suits the more skillful player and rules enabling more skillful play. Mm. Tommy, do you want to come in on all this? Yeah, I'm slightly, slightly puzzled about it, Joe, to some degree, because um, we're still seeing an awful lot of this dreadful lateral passing, hand mm. passing, mm. over and back across the middle third of a field, which maybe 13 opponents still behind the ball. Now, I admit, I don't know quite know how to uh, reconcile that with uh, the stats that Christie has outlined here. The, the, the data is there. The scores, uh, uh, the scoring average seems to be going up, for the moment anyway. And yet at the same time, uh, we're looking at, we're still looking at this, I find really exasperating trend and it's been going on for years the uh the way the game evolved from a kicking game to a hand passing game almost like a basketball game and and i i recall martin brahney doing stats about that in recent years too about the escalation the sheer uh, um doubling and trebling of hand passes and uh, that's no that's a pretty that's no skill at all Mm. and uh, and i find a lot of it still very turgid to watch on the other hand, uh, as Mick was saying and Christy is saying, this, the the scores, the scoring averages are going up. So uh, riddle me that. I don't really, I don't have an ex- explanation as to why. I, I like Mick's point there that um, that players find would if players probably find it soul destroying if all they're told to do is get a, stay behind the ball and that's your job. I mean, maybe there's maybe maybe the players uh, just won't accept that anymore. It's just too grueling and too joyless. Uh, what, there, there are, uh, as Mick says, a myriad of reasons, and Christy d- d- digs down into them here as well. But uh, there's a part of me still wondering how it's happening because uh, we're still seeing, a lot of the time, 12, 13 players behind the ball. Hmm. I think, though, I, I think there's a part of this, though, Tommy, that, you know... We lauded Chelsea, you know, for their tactics and their the way they yeah. the way they set themselves up. And you can laud soccer teams um, and rugby teams for control. And you know, I I just wonder because we're GA purists, like people don't like to see Gaelic football teams taking this thing out of a game, controlling game, because it tends to go against the, what it was the traditional view of what GA should be. And I'm not saying that's what you were saying. I'm just saying. That's some of the commentary that comes back, right? Mm. I watched Dublin and Kerry last week, and there were patches in the game where Dublin went over and back and over and back and over and back yeah. when, they were, when they were beating Kerry. And it's not great to look at, but they're actually completely controlling the game. And they're waiting for Kerry to come out of them, and, and they're, they're being patient. And all those things that we would say would be brilliant from a basketball team or a rugby team or a soccer team, because I think we want to see the ball being kicked and the ball move forward at pace, which is what looks better sometimes. Um, I, 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 I just think it's changed. I, I, I just think that a team can't be entitled to go over and back, over and back, if it's with purpose. I think what, what frustrates me is you see two teams and they park, they both park the bus 
and they both take 40 passes to get to the halfway line and then they fumble the ball and they turn it over and the other team has a go at the same thing right and what's most frustrating is a team is losing by five points and they still have 13 men behind the ball mm. and they haven't got to a point where maybe we actually need to press um, and I, I think the better teams like Dublin and Kerry you can look at them in evolution and Tyrone you're looking at them in evolution as well can play multiple different ways in multiple different times of the game. So Dublin will go hell for leather, toe-to-toe, and express themselves and go at a team. But then they will also have times in the game where Dublin will look super defensive, and yeah. they will also control a game, and they'll knock the ball around the halfway line until such a time as it suits them, um, or as such a time as the team has to come out, and then they try and play around them. So sorry, it's just only a small point. I, I no, do I, think I, I, think that, I think that's exactly the, the key point. It's the pale imitations that actually give the tactics a bad name like Donegal 2012 were a thrilling team but look at all the pale knockoffs of Donegal who didn't have the attacking prowess to go with the brilliant defence and it looks so turgid and here we are now and uh, you sort of referenced it there Mick I mean when Dublin take the sting out of a game there's such a method to it and there's such an intelligence to it and you know they're going to keep the ball and then work a really good score around the D so you kind of forgive it Whereas when lesser teams do it, I think half the time they're just going to cross the pitch back and forth with no real end point in sight. And that's where it can just become ridiculous. Do you think yeah. that's bad, Joel? I watched the Division 5 team in Dublin there a few years ago and all they did is go over and back across the pitch for yeah. about 20 minutes. <laughs> yeah. And, and, and like they, 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 they think... Yeah. They, I'm sure. And they think they're playing ticky-tacky GEA, but actually they're just going around in circles. It's um, it's it's and and there's another irony here, and Mick Mick uh, referred to it there, uh, 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 via via the Chelsea uh, example last night was that actually that um condensed very compressed uh, 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 configuration that they had actually turned out to be very creative as well. It became not not just a, a method of closing down Man City, but it, it actually was a springboard for their own attacks. Yes. And they actually generated an awful lot of attacks last night and goal chances for out of that system. And we see Dublin in particular doing it uh, also. So there is a, there is th- that is another apparent sort of paradox to it too, that out of that sort of um, uh, what seems cons- conservative formations and that, it, 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 they actually can be productive in attack as well. So basically, I really don't know what <laughs> I really I really don't know how to, what way to come down on it. Except it's very interesting to see uh, Gaelic football evolve. All all sports should evolve. It's mm. a it's a healthy sign if they are uh, that there are people thinking about how to play their sport. And as mixes Gaelic football is no different to anyone to any other. Correct. One. The the one strange thing, Mick. The one, the, 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 yeah, I was just going to say the, the one strange thing is that like I don't know why in Gaelic games so many of the teams all have to do the same thing you know what I mean it's yeah. very, very homogenised yeah. like, what, what, what are all 32 of us doing this year As, like you look at Chelsea and Man City last night like styles make fights and all that we probably don't have that many styles in GEA is the only thing we're all looking over the garden fence mm. oh we'll do that too I know it's very yeah. slavish like and you know a yeah, team wins a championship and, and the next year they're all setting up the same way you know and someone had a psychologist we need a psychologist someone trained yeah. at six in the morning so we all need to train at six in the morning <laughs> yeah. you know and and I think there was a bit of that and I think look maybe Dublin because they seem to have got that balance right people are looking at Dublin and, and, and they do tend to look at the best teams and say okay well look how do we you know mirror that because you're, you're not going to beat the better teams with just one tactic. And I think what, what is happening in GEA and Gaelic football um, is that the teams are, are trying to understand that you you have to play three or four different ways in the game in order to win the game. There's nothing wrong setting yourself up 
defensively for a certain period of time. Yeah. If if yeah. if that's the right thing to do with that, but you're not going to win a game doing it for the whole match. No, fellas, got to take a short ad break. Back with more from Tommy Conlon and Mick O'Keefe in just a sec. Sunday Papers on Off The Ball. You're very welcome back. Joe Malloy with you on the uh, Sunday Papers. We have Tommy Conlon from the Sunday Independent. Mick O'Keefe, CEO of Teneo Ireland with us as well. Naomi Osaka playing in the French Open. She's on a whole host of uh, places. The Sunday Business Post have a big profile of Osaka, which I'll hold up there on page 23 of the Sunday Business Post. David Walsh is writing about Naomi Saka on the back page of the Sunday Times. Paul Kimmage inside the Sunday Independent. Uh, in effect, uh, the point is, I think everybody's fairly familiar with Naomi Osaka at this stage. 23 years of age, she is the highest paid female athlete in history, made $50 million last year off the court, made $5 million on the court, has won four Grand Slams in no time. Very outspoken on a whole host of things, increasingly... Uh, social justice issues as she at a US Open last year wore seven different face masks each bearing the name of a black victim of racial violence while playing her opponents she forfeited a game as well following the shooting of Jacob Blake when he was shot seven times in the back by a policeman in Wisconsin Osaka said she would forfeit her match to draw attention to police violence against black people she uh, flew in and took part in the George uh, Floyd demonstrations as well last summer. And she made headlines this week by saying she would not be partaking in any press conferences at the French Open. The Business Post here piece says, uh, quotes are saying, I've often felt that people, she's talking about the press here, have no regard for athletes' mental health. And this rings a very true whenever I see a press conference or partake in one. We're often sat there and asked questions that bring doubt into our minds and I'm just not going to subject myself to that. And I'm not going to subject myself to people that <coughs> doubt me. And she's told the tournament organisers to fine her for not partaking in, in required press conferences and that they donate the money to charity. I think she can be fined up to $20,000 per missed press conference. So potentially a huge sum of money now. I'm told, I didn't see it, she did an on-court interview after her first round match at the French Open, but uh, it's uh, caught the attention of various people, David Walsh and Paul Kimmage, and they're uh, giving their views on it. Tommy, what's your take on the whole situation? I don't have a take, Joe, because I'm just um, um, sort of processing the the information about it, and uh, I'm a bit conflicted uh, about it, really, uh, and so I don't, I haven't yes come down on one side or another and may not at all yeah. uh, uh, depending on what we find out um uh, is it is it for example specific to naomi asaka herself her own emotional or mental well-being and i might just on that uh, phrase uh, it's, it's been one of the i think um liberating um uh, uh, aspects of modern sport is that more, more and more sports people, uh, elite famous people have come out to talk about their battles with uh, mental health, be it uh, be it domestically in Ireland or internationally and um, and uh, that has been very admirable and uh, uh, I would have ho- thought and hoped uh, helpful to a lot of uh, 
anonymous people who have been struggling with the same things. On the other hand, I just wonder, are we going to reach a stage where the phrase mental health becomes just a catch-all, a cliche, and, and, and that people somehow just end up becoming sort of, uh, uh, sort of, it doesn't have the effect anymore on them. It, it, it just becomes another uh, meme almost. And uh, and is there a danger of it when it's invoked? If if it is going to be invoked so often or a lot of the time, will people just kind of become sort of antagonistic to it? Uh, that's a more general point. I, mm. I would have thought maybe to be careful about how often we bandy it around and maybe use it. Sorry, Joe, go ahead. No, I think that's yeah. a, I think that's a very kind of interesting broad point to make like I, I'm not familiar enough with Naomi Osaka as a person I haven't watched like dozens yeah, of press conferences I haven't watched dozens of tennis press conferences like it's still kind of a niche sport except for about uh, four fortnights when the Grand Slams are on so I don't know like are they being harangued the whole time and is the tone of the press conferences particularly uh, vicious or difficult I mean David Walsh makes the point at the end of mm -hmm. his piece he says before anyone makes up their mind on this issue it's worth watching the video of Osaka's interview after her first round loss at Wimbledon two years ago the questions were reasonable and sensitively framed but still her anguish meant she was in no fit emotional state to respond. I feel like I'm about to cry, she said before exiting. Her decision comes from a desire to protect herself. Um, yeah. And so like, yeah. you, ca you can't have any quibbles with someone mm. who cites their mental health and they want to protect themselves. Um, I, I mean, that'd be the starting point. Absolutely n no problem with that at all, I guess, Mick. And it's a bad look I, if the I, French yeah. Open want to fine her $20,000 when she is citing mental health, I would think. Yeah, I, I, there's, a, there's a few things in this, right? So the first yeah. one is obviously, look, if, if if the girl has is feeling the stress of of post game, um, post match interviews, well then she should be accommodated in some way, shape, or form, if possible, right? Mm. And I'm not aware of of any underlying issues or, or anything like that either. So um, it does seem a bit strange. Like I've seen some of these tennis press conferences. They aren't, you know, we're not talking about bear pit how's the common stuff here you know it's how did you get on and you know what did you think um paul, i do think paul Kimmage makes that point at length yeah and, and i look I, I do think there's a broad look there's a few things here there's a broader piece around expecting young athletes to go straight from the emotion and, and stress of a of a game in front of millions of people and go straight into a media environment, right? And we even expect amateur GA players with no training and no anything to go and do pitch side after matches in front of thousands of people, right? Mm -hmm. So look, you're a professional, Joe, and you know, like th these things aren't easy for some people, right? So maybe we need to reframe this in a way as well to make them maybe um, and not expect that people can just do these things. However, she's been in the spotlight for a long time. Um, I think her, you know, she's making something like 55 million a year of which 50 is endorsements and fair play to her and you know just from from seeing it from a certain perspective you know she takes all the boxes you know from a marketing and commercial perspective you know we have this situation now where you know there's not one major organization in the world that won't that won't that will go into a sponsorship unless there's a balance either a gender balance or a or a racial balance in that portfolio and that's great to see 
um, and she is a a a, a black female, um, and she is getting you know I suppose the the one who is the benefit of that, but obviously people want to be associated with her. Um, on, on, on the one hand but I think it probably does bring an added stress because she then is the poster girl for loads and loads of other stuff and whether she brought some of these upon herself and I don't mean that in a bad way but if she has been quite vocal on certain issues um, well then she's probably going to get a, a larger amount of scrutiny than others may get um, I think the point that David Walsh makes is absolutely bang on in that I don't, I, all I think she's doing here is putting more um, stress on herself um, by flagging this and not doing um, media, of which she's contracted to do. Um, and again, look, if there's other things at play, well then that, that obviously that needs to be factored in. But like in, in sport, you know, are we are we better off or worse off for her media blackout? You know, you'd have to say that we're worse off for her. She has interesting things to say. She's one of the poster girls of her sport. You know, I, I think I, I don't think it's a good decision um, un, unless there are other underlying um, reasons why she can't or just just can't cope in those kind of environments. Um, and I'd like to see her hopefully reverse that decision and and, and maybe and maybe do those interviews um, post game because people do want to hear from her. Um, and, you know, what, what you don't want is I don't think people, unfortunately, it becomes part of the gig and you can't really cherry pick all the bits that you like and maybe all some of the bits that you don't like um and even if that is media engagement because we're all part of the wider ecosystem of sport news talk is the irish independent everybody is part of the wider ecosystem and they all feed off each other and without media um there is no sport either right <laughs> um and it needs it, it's the conduit of which the masses still get their information and it's still and, and where they hear from 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 these high profile athletes so um i would like to see her reconsider that and maybe um maybe engage with with media post um post match in those press conferences that, that's just my yeah view on it joe paul the headline in paul kimmage's piece is an actual living hero is 10 times as likely to walk down your street than to appear on tv and so he well it's kind of an, an interesting way of going about it he imagines a conversation with naomi osaka about the situation and in this conversation he says to her i've watched clips of uh, athletes um uh, this is no, sorry he says you've played in five tournaments this year and he names the tournaments and in this imagined conversation she says yeah he says that's 21 press conferences and 372 questions so then Paul Kimmer says I've gone through them one by one <laughs> uh, here's a flavour are you a player that thrives off the energy of fans how are you grappling with being seen as the face of women's tennis these days? What have you learned about being a businesswoman over the past few months? What's it like being back in Melbourne? What's the best live match you've ever been to? Goes on to other uh, questions. You're one of the poster athletes for the Olympic Games. Was it disappointing to hear the comments uh, from Yoshiro Mori about women? Uh, do you drink or try wine? How important is the world number one ranking to you? What has been your worst tennis related dream? And then a final few. Do you have a lot of input into the designs that you wear for Nike? Do you consider yourself to be a brand? Have you been watching the George Floyd trial? You've launched your skincare company, uh, etc. Maybe I'm laboring the point here. How are you able to be so successful on both the court and as a businesswoman, etc.? Congratulations on your Laureus Award. What was your reaction when you got the news? You're one of the f new faces at Louis Vuitton. Are you going to come out with a collab soon etc and his conclusion is it's not exactly the Spanish Inquisition is it and on the basis of those questions it's not um, so like in general terms because you can't talk about an individual like Osaka because we don't know her we don't know what's going on behind the scenes and if she's saying that look it's my, for my mental health then you have to just take that at face value in general terms the questions don't look to be that horrific so I guess the worry is 
ultimately if uh, you know this is a, a line in the sand and all a lot of the tennis players Tommy can just say well look frankly you know I, in so much as I take Mick's point about how um, everything's all connected and the media need the stars and the stars need the media we're probably at a point now where Naomi Osaka's social media following completely dwarfs the following of any media organisations she's talking to and a lot of the stars now can say I, I actually don't need the media I can talk to them directly yeah. I can do it on my terms I can do it without the questions like she might turn around and say I find these questions inane that I'm being asked I mean it's not that they're all uh, horrifically upsetting to me it's just I find the whole process draining I want to prioritise my performance I will talk to fans on my terms through my social media I'll give them the insights I want to give them I'm not a I'm not I'm not a, a in office here I don't owe you anything I don't owe you explanations to anything once I'm abiding by the rules and doing my thing so frankly I'm out and find me if you want to find me and do something nice with the money um, mm. you know increasingly that could become the default position for a lot of the top players Phil Mickelson sort of did it last week actually interestingly at um, yeah. Keogh a, a man who's very open with the media plays the game very well by all accounts, we were hearing the various broadcasters saying Phil was letting it be known through his management that it was three questions, three questions only. He's in, he's out. He ain't he ain't sitting here talking to you guys for half an hour because he wanted to focus on his performance. And he was vindicated. And if Naomi Osaka wins the French Open in two weeks' time, not really spending time in a press conference asking inane or insensitive questions then I think she will feel absolutely vindicated and she'll say that's just the, that's the way the world now media deal with it yeah but that's well, what's the you know what's the, what's the point of it of, of, of independent media then you know like like do we get to this point where you know everything is either sponsor driven content you know we've these brands who are now publishing their own content we've in, people in short in, in short stuff. in short make we do and it's not as good that is that is where we get to and it won't yeah, be as good yeah. Yeah, and and it, it's like it's not it's not as good, and you you need people there to ask questions, and you know, okay, it doesn't have to be an us and them thing, you know. Um, like if we get to a point where people are only going to talk to their own social channels, or through their sponsor channels, well, then we're going to end up in an overly controlled world of blandness, which I don't think anybody wants either. Now she's not there to be grilled and turned over every time she goes into a press conference, but you know, media are, are there to ask questions, and they're there to ask questions on behalf of the fans and others. Um, and otherwise, we're going to end up. You know, with this, as I said, just this completely controlled, um, bland, vanilla content coming at us the whole time. Where famously we've had people going out doing, you know, my first interview would be with, you know, X Association TV. You know what I mean? Yeah. Of course you never. Yeah. You're not going to get asked any questions. You know, like it's, you know, and 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 they're going to just hide behind, um, you know, just pushing stuff out. That becomes a broadcast. It doesn't become an an, an interview. Um, I wouldn't like to see it go down that road. And look. These um, global partners and and broadcast partners and um, and and fans want to hear from from these people. So you know, I'm sure it's the last thing the world fellas want to do, and athletes want to do is is sometimes go into a press conference, particularly after losing, um, and to have to front up. But you know, that to me, I kind of would think is 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 part of your job. Do you want to come in, Tommy? Final word on yeah. all this. Yeah, I mean, um, it's actually quite a complicated issue when you start drilling down into it. And mm. uh, both David and Paul uh, actually do two very, very good pieces, I think, in very different ways. And um, in Paul's piece, he, he, he actually it's just a kind of a creative way of uh, and um, he just has kind of a, a, an imaginative take whereby he begins by quoting Gene Collier, a former sports writer with the Pittsburgh Post-Gazette. 
and um, in which Collier apparently had a realization many years ago waiting outside the Pittsburgh Steelers uh, locker room waiting for quotes and uh, uh, and decided to jack it in and and editorially uh, I, I, Gene Collier made this point and Paul makes it and David makes it editorially an awful lot of the uh, post-game interviews across all sports are editorially almost worthless. They are incredibly useless. Mm. These these uh, these absolutely sycophantic, deferential, marshmallow questions. Uh, uh, sort of inf- uh, sort of it's infantilizing of both. I think the athlete and the uh, interviewer. And isn't the, isn't isn't the implicit understanding there though that if you don't ask questions along yes. those lines, then I'm not going to give you access yes. in future. That's the unwritten situation Correct. here with these kind of lick ass interviews all the time, post Correct. post post round or post match. And it's the ancient. It's that ancient, and it's, it predates uh, Osaka, and it goes back a hundred years. It's the ancient battle between access and um, proper questions. Uh, Correct. Access and editorial. Yeah. The, uh, you, you listen, Joe. You know the story too. You've, you've, oh, hundred yeah. percent. But we're, we're yeah. now. Yeah. But it's it, it, the 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 great change now, though. The great change now is they no longer need the media at all. Agreed. That the is power, the difference. The power. Well, uh, look, our our power has been ebbing away anyway. The power of the traditional media, let's call it print, and and indeed even intelligent, has been ebbing away through technology and the internet anyway. And this, in a way, is just another manifestation of the tilting of the balance away towards the, the sort of institutional authority, for example, that the print media used to have. It's ebbing away, and I, I have personally happened to think that the, the one way we can retain our credibility and authority and relevance is be, by being as editorially as uh, tough and interesting and entertaining and independent and, um, and taking our work as seriously as we can all the time and maybe saying what the whole rest of corporate sport will, uh, will refuse to say. Mm. And, and I, that's maybe me clutching at straws but I, I i do think it's as urgent as ever that we do we do our work well and with uh, 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 with integrity and with the sort of creativity and i think uh skill that david and paul have shown in their pieces today mm. you were trying to get in there mick no sorry no I, like I, I i agree look i, I wouldn't underestimate um how important the, the, the media remains right because you know, it, it still is vital that, that um, you know, the best interviews you read now are still interviews that are done, you know, you know, it, it, they're not necessarily pushed out content, you know, that's overly controlled. Um, I would argue in the case of Osaka as well, there's probably European-based tennis journalists, sports writers who would never get an opportunity to sit in the same room and talk to this lady, right? And surely part of the whole, um, I suppose, joy of being a sports writer um, uh, even if the access is sitting down in a room and you're one of 25 or 50 people, yeah. um, surely that that should remain um, something that journalists get. That even if it's controlled access post match or post game, um, surely that should still remain part of the gig. And I, I I do appreciate that a lot of the post uh, match interviews are bland and they tend to be kind of kind of tell us how great you were today. Um, but in saying that, um, sometimes they're not. Um, and sometimes you do glean an interesting insight from somebody who maybe gives something away in terms of 
how they were playing in X set or mm. how they've struggled with some an, an injury the week leading up or something that that could be quite interesting. That could colour the, the post match analysis or post game analysis. And I would think it's a shame that I hope it's not a, a another trend that people are just going to give the two fingers to 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 um post post game press conferences and just not turn up. Like it's harder in the GA where the fellas aren't been paid to do it. I right? know. Yeah. Like, this is professional sport where people are been paid. Um and it is and it is part of the gig. And again, caveating all this in terms of of maybe um after intense scrutiny over the last number of years, she's just feeling enormous strain um and is quite anxious about these things. Mm. Well then surely there could something could be done for her that isn't quite the nuclear option just not turning up at all. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, look, in her instance, when she's citing mental health, it's absolutely yeah. no problem. I think we're all emphasising that point. I guess the interesting thing is if it becomes a wider trend and, yeah. you know, um, yeah. it just becomes Watch a thing. Well, I'm not doing it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it'd be, in, it'd be interesting to see. So that's Naomi Saka, who's won her first round, actually, and uh, is playing at the French Open. We're talking to Luke Jensen later on about the French Open on the show. Clock's massively coming against us. We're not going to get to... We had wanted to touch on... There's a there's an interesting interview with Jamie McGrath, who's been called up to the Irish squad. There's a farce, our future, the Logan Paul versus Floyd Mayweather fight, which is on next Sunday. There's Eamon Sweeney on Ole Gunnar Solskjaer. Tommy, you saw a great piece on... Cuban baseball. There's the FAI at 100 yeah. years. We had jotted down all these pieces to get to, and we've uh, well, I've made a mess of things by not getting us there quickly enough. Um, any of those in particular you would like to mention, Tommy? Uh, Mark Gallagher has, an, has a good update on on the Tokyo Olympics yes. and the massive tensions yeah, that are unfolding over there, uh, and indeed the international the international Olympic Committee demanding their pound of flesh off the city of Tokyo of the athletes and all like that. That's worth checking out to keep up to date. The baseball one, very briefly, Joe. It's in the uh, uh, foreign news section, world news section of the Te- Sunday Telegraph, not the sports section, about a, a brilliant Cuban baseball player who has defected to the United States and the ramifications for that even geopolitically between Joe Biden and uh, and the American uh, political machine and the Cuban uh, Americans in Florida and, and the Cuban government and all like that. That's just something out of left field that I found very interesting. Yeah. Yeah, Joe, I'll only going to solve share in the back of the end of good article. I, Philip Quinn, 100 years at the FAI, is yeah. really interesting for people who are into that kind of stuff. Um, I know news talk this morning, there was a guy on, Donald Fallon, I think, talking about Talca Park. It was a brilliant piece, actually. Um, and people who are interested in Irish football are interested in the history of, of Irish um, sport. That 100-year journey, um, I think what you find when you get to, the, get, get to it, a couple of things. One is... Um, how Irish soccer just mirrors what was everything that was going on around it. So you had the 1920s and the split with Northern Ireland. Then you had the the Nazi issue when the you know the the Nazi flags flying, um, and the Irish team did this Nazi salute in 1939. Mm. Um, all the way through. But the most you know thing that jumps out to me is that the most interesting things in Irish football have actually happened in the recent past. Um, Saipan, Jack Charlton, um, all that kind of good stuff. So, um, but it's a very interesting read, and I think we're going to read more about it. And one thing I, I think with this Joe as well, the FAI are, are, are really bad at celebrating. Um, they have been traditionally bad at celebrating, um, you know, anniversaries. Only when the likes of Alan McLaughlin pass away and stuff like that, you really get a get a sense that you look back. Um, the GA and RFU are, are substantial have been substantially better at those milestones and celebrations. Um, uh, and I think maybe it's time for the FAI to come out and 
and look at its 100-year history for good and for bad and, and celebrate the good times and, and hopefully look to a new era for Irish soccer as well. But I, I, I really enjoyed that that um, article um, as well, if, if people are, are interested in having a look at that. OK, very good. You're a Man United fan, Mick, are you? I am. And on Eamon Sweeney drowning out of his depth, uh, Manchester United will win nothing as long as Solskjaer is the manager. There'll be goals, entertainment, excitement, but there won't be trophies. Solskjaer's Manchester United aren't really Manchester United. They're Spurs. Let's face it, if they couldn't win Wednesday's Europa League final against Villarreal, what are they going to win? Are you uh, stick with Ollie? He's at the wheel and we love it. Or are you uh, in agreement with Eamon Sweeney there? No, so there's a couple of things. And actually, um, Roy Curtis touches on one thing in the in the Sunday World where he talks about, you know, would any other club Manchester United benchmarks itself against be chasing Ollie Gunnar Solskjaer to be their manager, right? And look, I'm I'm in the glass half-empty camp, unfortunately. I I... I it pains Man United fans to criticise Solskjaer because he kind of was the the absolute uh, legend and everything selfless and all those things and, and is the one of the poster boys of that glorious generation. Um, half class full version is second in the league, got to a European final. Some of the form of the likes of Fernandez, McTominay, Rashford, etc. The half empty version is we didn't make it to the Champions League quarter, we caught uh, Champions League knockout stages. I think the issues in Manchester United are deeper than Ole Gunnar Solskjaer, but that does that mean Ole Gunnar Solskjaer is up to the job. Um, I think if you're going to be benchmarking against the real heavyweights, and this is a conversation I was having with fellas watching the match last night, you know, he's no Tuchel, he's no Guardioli, he's no Klopp. They're heavyweights, you know, in, in managerial terms. Mm. Um, I, I, he's learning on the job. I, I think United could do better, but I think their problems probably run a bit deeper than who the manager is. Yeah. Fellas, we're out of time. Thanks so much for all us. Sorry, sorry, Tommy, say that again. Sorry, Joe. I said uh, it's a tough piece by uh, by Eamon Sweeney on Oli Garner Solskjaer, but ultimately probably true. Yeah, yeah. In my opinion. Yeah. Tommy Conlon of the Sunday Independent, Mick O'Keefe, CEO of Teneo Ireland. Gents, thanks very much. Enjoy the bit of sunshine. Thanks, Joe. Cheers. Thank you. The Sunday Papers on Off the Ball. You subscribed to the OTB Football Podcast. I tell you, if I was in management, I wouldn't go to Spurs now. No way. I think Brandon Rodgers would be mad to go to Spurs. Subscribe now to the OTB Football Podcast stream wherever you get your podcasts and download the OTB Sports app. The Football Pod with Paddy and Andy, our new weekly Gaelic football show. Lads, it's official, right? No GA player was practising tackling at all during lockdown. They were practising that dummy bounce. Download the OTB Sports app and subscribe to the GAA Podcast feed now.